Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are going to try to finish the book of Ezra tonight. We're going to start in Ezra chapter 9, and then all we have to do is get through 9 and 10. Sounds like an easy enough task. However, there is also an internal controversy introduced in these two chapters. Now, I'm going to walk very carefully with what I say for the next little while as we build up to these chapters because uh, I'm going to walk lightly around the controversy. But I do think that we have to talk about the controversy. Last week, I said that the Israelites had been rebellious in marrying the people from the surrounding lands and that their hearts had been taken away to foreign gods and that they are going to decide, because of the words of Ezra the priest, they are going to decide to put away their foreign wives. They're going to divorce their foreign wives. And then I said last week, and in order to understand that, we're going to talk about divorce only in as much as we need to understand it to get through this passage. Because the internal controversy that I mentioned is they, in their obedience to God, are going to follow what God has already told them to do. For instance, if you would, Tom, look up Deuteronomy 7 and read verses 3 and 4 for us, and you're going to see God lay out very specific instruction about not intermarrying with the people, the Canaanites of the land that God is giving to the Israelites. Here's the rule. Tom's going to read it. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Okay, so there's one side of the argument. One side of the argument is God has told them specifically, don't do this. And then when Ezra gets to Jerusalem, after the rebuilding effort to rebuild the temple, he discovers that they're doing exactly that. They're intermarrying yet again with the peoples of the lands. So Ezra's going to call them out for their guilt, and he's going to pray to God because of their guilt and then the men are going to admit their guilt and then decide to put away their foreign wives. At the very same time, Malachi is prophesying in that area of Israel. As we've talked about before, Malachi's place in the history of the development of Israel is right here in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi too. God says, I hate putting away. Some of your translations say, I hate divorce. We may look at a few of the different translations tonight because that is actually a difficult passage to interpret, as you'll see by the different ways that people have translated that passage. But nevertheless, 
there seems to be an internal conflict. Here are the children of Israel, the men of Israel saying, we're going to put away our foreign wives because we've broken the rule that Tom just read. So the only way to make things right with God again is to divorce our wives. And at that exact same time, you have a prophet in those exact people groups saying to them, and God hates divorce. And they're saying, we're going to divorce. So what about it? Isn't that some kind of a conflict? Now, let me say this up front, and then we'll talk about what needs to be talked about. I don't think that the last two chapters of Ezra, though they are often cited in controversies about divorce, I don't think that the last two chapters of Ezra are technically even really about divorce. That's not the primary point. The primary point is obedience. The primary point is the children of Israel returning to the things God has already told them to do. But in doing so, they're walking right headlong into the controversy about divorce. So what does the law say? What are the Old Testament rules about divorce? And is divorce completely forbidden in the law? Well, if you turn to Deuteronomy 24, that's where you find the rules about divorce that Jesus himself quotes. When they come to Jesus and they say to him, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? He then answers them, you've heard it said that you can divorce your wife by giving her a bill of divorcement, but I say that if you put away your wife for any reason outside of adultery, outside of sexual impurity or uncleanness, then you are causing her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries her is committing adultery. From the beginning, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, that's the ideal that God had set up from the beginning. Well, what he was quoting from there is Deuteronomy 24, which includes what the law has to say about divorce. And you will notice that it's not quite as objectively strict as some people might think. For instance, the law says, starting in chapter 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, most commentators will tell you that he's talking about sexual impurity at that point. Then he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house. Well, that's kind of what Jesus was getting at. When they asked, can you divorce your wife for any reason? His answer was no, except for the cause of adultery. He still left open the possibility that divorce would be justified on the basis of sexual impurity. But that's what the law says. But then notice it says in verse 2, and she leaves his house and she goes and becomes the wife of another man. Which seems to imply that the law allows that a woman who's been divorced can remarry because there's nothing said here about restricting her from remarrying. But then the law goes on and says, and if the latter husband, the second husband, turns against her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, 
then the first husband, the former husband who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. In other words, since she has already been the sexual partner of another man. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home for one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. At that point, all the women say, yeah, that's right. He needs to stay home for a year and make me happy. That's a good part of the law right there. And that's kind of it. That's the summation of what the law has to say about divorce. So now the question becomes, is this reference to finding some indecency in her, is that sufficient to say that what the Israelites saw in their foreign wives was an indecency such that they deserved to be divorced in obedience to God. Could we then extrapolate to the point where we say it's not just sexual indecency that the law is talking about, but it's also the chasing of foreign gods and then taking the children of Israel's hearts away so that they too would chase foreign gods. Is that all under the heading of this indecency? And the answer is, uh, I don't know. But I do know that at the end of the book of Ezra, when they make a plan to put away their foreign wives, there's no indication that God is upset with them doing that. There is every indication that he's accepting that that's what they're going to do because Ezra doesn't counter them in any way. And yet you have at the exact same time Malachi saying God hates divorce. So what about that? Well, that got me thinking again. I kept coming around and around in the same circle, so I started thinking about that phrase, God hates divorce. Now, if you, in your life, in Christian circles, have ever been divorced, and I, and I just pray you haven't, because it's just a horrible and ugly thing, which anyone who's been divorced will tell you. I'm certainly not up here advocating for divorce, even if it sounds like I'm saying, well, you know, the law kind of says, and Jesus kind of says, and Paul kind of leaves open. If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. I am not advocating for divorce. But I also can't tell you the number of times that people have discovered that I am divorced. Of course, I make no secret of it. It's, it's right on my blog. I'm very open about the fact that 14 years ago, my marriage was dissolved. And I can't tell you how many people have written to me and said, well, you know, God hates divorce. And that's always the phrase that Christians seem to throw at other Christians. In my experience within the church, the church has a tendency to shoot its wounded. And so whenever they find somebody who has been wounded, they're very quick to pounce in a very legalistic way, take some phrase out of context and say, well, you are now an even worse sinner. It's not bad enough that your marriage has blown up on you, but you're also extra, extra guilty because God hates divorce. Except that if you go back and read it, there is some controversy about what that verse actually means 
because the opening words of that verse in Hebrew aren't real clear about the pronoun. What we know in that verse is someone hates, there's a hating going on, and there's a putting away of wives going on, and some translations say it's God who is the one who's doing the hating. Some translations say that God hates not only the divorce, but the person who did the divorce. So now you've got God hating people as a result of it. But then some translations say that the person who did the divorce is the one who is the hating one, and the person he has hated is the wife he has put away. So turn over to the book of Malachi real quick. Malachi chapter 2, if you would. And we're going to start reading, just to put it in context, we're going to read starting at verse 13. Now remember that Malachi is saying this right in that time period where the children of Israel have all agreed across the board to put away their foreign wives. So verse 13, and this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. So in other words, people are bringing their offerings. They think it's going to make everything okay between them and God. And yet God continues to correct them and to punish them. And so they end up at the altar just weeping, please God, please God, but they haven't yet cleaned up their own lives. And so they don't even see their own guilt. Verse 14, and yet you say, for what reason? So why isn't God accepting the favor of my hands? You'll say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Now the NASB says in verse 16, for I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. Some of your translations will say with violence, and that's really what the Hebrew word is there. It's the word for violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed of your spirit that you don't deal treacherously. So here is God saying that putting away wives for just any cause is a way of dealing treacherously with them, causing them harm and violence, and they are your garment. They are part of you. And here you are dealing treacherously with them. So God says, for I hate divorce, according to the NASB. So verse 17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. 
and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Okay, so there's the context of verse 16. Now let me read you a couple different translations of verse 16. Because as I said, in the Hebrew language, the actor, the pronoun, is not that clear. It might be God saying, I hate divorce. But it also might be that the person who is divorcing his wife is the one who is showing treacherous hate to the one that he's divorcing. Here's what the different translations say. The NIV, I don't know if any of you have a New International Version with you, but you'll read, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Okay, does that say God says I hate divorce? Well, no, that's because different people are are dealing with different ways to render these Hebrew words that are not all that exact. The English Standard Version says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The King James Bible does say, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirits, that ye deal not treacherously. The Christian Standard Bible says, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice says the Lord of armies. The contemporary English version says, the Lord God all-powerful of Israel hates anyone who is cruel enough to divorce his wife. So take care and never be unfaithful. Now, in that one, that's even a tougher standard because if you divorce your wife, God hates you. It's not just God hates the divorce, but God hates you, according to a (coughs) contemporary English version. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, then he covers his garment with injustice. The International Standard Version says, Indeed, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce along with the one who conceals his violence by outward appearances, says the Lord of the heavenly armies. The NET Bible, the New English Translation, has, I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel, and the one who is guilty of violence. The Jubilee Bible, published back in the year 2000, says, He that rejects her, sending her away, said the Lord God of Israel, covers the violence with a garment. And the Dewey Rames Bible says, When thou shalt hate her, put her away. So they see it within the context of, You found some uncleanness in her, therefore you dislike her, therefore the command is, when you shall hate her, put her away, says the Lord God of Israel. That's the exact opposite of everything else we're reading. The English Revised Version says, for I hate putting away, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And Young's Literal Translation says, for I hate sending away, says Jehovah, the God of Israel. So, can you see the the wide berth that there actually is among translators when dealing with that passage out of Malachi. So maybe, just maybe, just possibly, 
when Christians shoot their wounded and say, two already wounded divorced people, you know, God hates divorce, maybe they're not exactly correct because they're quoting one translation, one version, but other translators have had to deal over the years with the fact that the language isn't exactly that precise. Now, if what God is saying in Malachi is that in order to divorce your wife, there is a sort of injustice, there is a violence that is done to her, okay then, Malachi could say that to the children of Israel, but they would still stand guiltless in their obedience of divorcing their foreign wives. You'll also notice that the language is the wife of your youth and the wife of the covenant. There are some commentators who say that that phrase, the wife of the covenant, means since God said you can only marry within Israel, those would be children, daughters of the covenant that God made with Israel. So those would be daughters of the covenant. You've married a wife of your youth within the covenant. Or he's saying that you made her a promise and that the marriage promise formed a covenant between you and her. Again, commentators just aren't that sure. What does all this mean? What's the point of me going through all this? Well, you're going to see Israel now, starting in the last chapters of Ezra, you're going to see them agree to widespread divorce. And yet it seems okay. And yet it seems to be an act of obedience to God because they've broken the rule that God has already given them that they're not to marry foreign wives. How do you deal with all that? How do you reconcile all of that? I don't know. It just exists. It's all in the Bible, and I have to be honest enough to say to you, this exists, this seems to be a conflict, but maybe it's not. And maybe God, maybe God, probably God, understands the human condition well enough to know that sometimes things happen that though they may be painful, though they may be even wrong, he's sympathetic to the fact that they happen because they're just painful things that happen. Maybe. Yes, Sandy. I see it as being reconciled to the, to the, in this age of grace. Um, we have to yes. between law and grace. God loves us uh, according to, to the New Testament uh, unconditionally, and he saved us by his mercy and all that. So now we have a major conflict. So that doesn't apply to us, I don't think. Right. I agree with everything you just said, if I understand everything you just said. We are in the New Covenant, and therefore our standing before God is a matter of grace. But Israel was under the law. And Israel was being sent prophets and a priest like Ezra to bring them back to obedience to God's law. And that's why all of these passages that I've looked at tonight all show you the obligation and the mindset that the Israelites were under. And at the very moment that they had a prophet, Malachi, saying to them, that they were guilty 
because of the way they were treating their wives, and yet they were putting their wives away, the very thing that some translations say God hated, leads me to believe that since they were there to actually hear it and actually comprehend it, that whatever they heard from Malachi fit what they were about to do in putting away their wives. I don't believe there was an actual conflict. You can find commentaries that pose a conflict. You can even find atheistic websites that point out these two things and say, well, look, here's God saying, I hate divorce, and here's Israel saying, he's divorced, and God didn't do anything to them. So, therefore, they conclude the Bible's not true. All I'm trying to prove is, by going through all of this tonight, is that what we're about to read in Ezra apparently was not in conflict with what Malachi was saying, and that Malachi was saying they were guilty for the way they were treating their Israelite wives, the wives of the covenant, but God had already told them, don't marry foreign wives, and when they married foreign wives, it was an act of obedience to put them away, even though... God had said, I hate divorce or some version of that. So I don't think that the I hate divorce rule is universally applicable. I think it's applicable to the people it was said to in the context it was said to them. And it was said about covenant relationships under the law. I'm just saying there's more to this than just yelling at other Christians because they ended up in the situation they ended up in. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. The Lord Christ said in the New Testament that God permitted it because of the heart is of our heart. Absolutely. When they asked Jesus about it, he said, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. So divorce was never God's intention, never God's plan. One man, one woman for life, that was always the godly standard. So again, like I said at the beginning, I'm not advocating for divorce. But in what we're about to read, and now we're going to read, so go to to Ezra chapter 9. But in Ezra, it seemed appropriate. Okay? Any other questions about that? Let's just get that all out on the table. Okay, so let's start at Ezra chapter 9. And there's a a good deal of reading to be done in the next 15 minutes. So I had better pick up the pace. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, Ezra says, writing in the first person, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, that's be Israel, the separated covenant people, the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands." Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, 
And I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and I stretched out my hands to the Lord, my God. And I said, oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Now, by the way, was Ezra guilty of any of this? Was he directly guilty? Had he done any of this? No, No, but in interceding for the people, he went just as Isaiah did and said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When being a representative of Israel, They go to God and say, we the people, we are all guilty collectively because God dealt with Israel collectively. So verse 7 says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, to give us a peg, like a tent peg, in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. So Ezra saying, I recognize that we've been in Babylon for the last 70 years, and we deserve that bondage because we're nothing but guilty continuously. And now here you've given us this grace. You've been kind to us, though we don't deserve it. And you've brought us back here to the place where your worship rightly ought to be. And we're like a tent peg. We're a remnant that's driven into the ground here at your temple And that's just a matter of your kindness and your grace. And yet, despite you doing all that for us, what are we doing? We're still rebelling. We're still guilty. Verse 9, for we are slaves. They've been in bondage. They're still under the rule of the Persian king. Yet, in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. But he has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of God, to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded By thy servant the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end with their impurity. Now, do not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, 
that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou, our God, hast requited us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break thy commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Wouldst thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant, nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is to this day, and behold, we are before thee in our guilt, for no one can stand before thee because of this. So that would be one of the reasons that Malachi is saying, you bring offerings and you bring your oblations to God and he doesn't receive them. And you, in your boldness and your ego, say, why? Why doesn't he receive them? Well, there's a whole list of reasons that Malachi gives. Everything from you've robbed me, you've treated the wives of your youth with violence, all the way to you're breaking my commandments by intermarrying and chasing after these foreign gods. So is there any surprise that God would be angry at them for doing that? Ezra has the right attitude and says, you really should just wipe us out completely. We really should not survive this. And if we do, it's just only your grace that would allow it. But would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there's no remnant nor anyone who escapes. Ezra's completely right. God should be angry at them, and he is, and rightly so, and justifiably so. And this is the state that they are in when Malachi comes to them and says, you're guilty, 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 and then his letter which is the last letter of the Old Testament, does end with the word curse because Israel is under the curse of God for the way they have misbehaved and continually broken his commandments. Ezra saying, God, you're right in treating them to uh, any kind of punishment you feel is appropriate. You're completely right. We got nothing. We've got nothing to plead our case. You're completely correct. We're nothing but guilty. Yes, sir, Sandy. I was thinking some, about something when you were reading. Um, that's like saying God hates his elect. Are you going back to the various translations that I read from Malachi 2.16? Yeah. I can't see God hating his elect, and I can't see God hating Israel, but Jacob is a different story. So I don't see that translation being too accurate. I think what you're describing is part of the problem that I was trying to demonstrate with translating Malachi 2.16. I, I mean, there are several different ways you have to look at it. What is it that God hates? Does he hate the person? Does he hate the act? Does he hate the, the sin? Does he hate the rebellion? Does he hate... There's some kind of hating going on in those verses. But I agree with you. If God loves you, he has always loved you. And that love is never going to change or else God would have to admit that he made a mistake when he loved you in the first place. 
And then you got so bad that he had to give up on you and had no choice. So I agree with that. However, again, remember what we're talking about here is Old Testament Israel under the law whose relationship with God is based on obedience. Even though there's flashes of grace here and there, just like Ezra said, the very fact that the remnant is back in Jerusalem is an act of grace. But still the covenant that they're operating under is the covenant of law, the covenant of Moses. And so their obedience defines their relationship in a different way than the new covenant would define our relationship with God, which is a relationship based on grace because we coming into the relationship have no goodness in us to begin with. So it has to be based on grace. Old or New Testament, it comes down to God's preserving choice in grace. Yeah. Okay, so chapter 10. I'm going to have to read quickly to finish up the book. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jahiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God. In other words, let us make a promise to God that we will put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. But we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and Israel take an oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took an oath. And then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, Eliashib, there we go. And he went into the house of Dave, and Dave and Ralph got together, and they made a covenant. It would be so much easier to read that way. So they went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be fortified and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. In other words, they'd be locked out of their house They'd be locked away from all their possessions, and they would be excluded from the assembly. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. Well, yeah, naturally. And it was the ninth month on the twelfth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful 
and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, that's right, that's correct. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people, and it is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand out in the open, nor can the task be done in just a day or two, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, with Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. But the exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men, who were heads of their father's households for each of their father's households, all of them by name, so they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate this matter. And they finished investigating all the men who had been married to foreign wives by the first of the first month. So there was actually going to be an accounting. That was the whole point. The men were saying, this isn't a light matter. This isn't something we're going to be able to take care of today or even the day after tomorrow. It's a complicated thing. We need to get together with the leaders that are the leaders of each of our individual areas and tribes and families. And we have to sort out what's right and what's fair and get it done appropriately So they convened on the 10th of the month to investigate the matter, and they finished investigating all the men who were married to foreign wives. So they really rooted out the sin at its very core, family by family, and took all the men who had married foreign wives. And to make things worse, the rest of that chapter is Ezra supplying a list of the offenders. Now that they've investigated it, Ezra takes the time to say, and we're going to journal it. We're going to write down exactly who did this so we know who the guilty guys are. And I think so that they could hold them responsible to make sure that those men are going to be watched, that they're not just saying they're going to put their wives away, but that they're actually going to do obediently what God has told them to do. Verse 18 says, and among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found the sons of Jeshua the son of Josadak and his brothers, Maasai and Eliezer and Jerob and Gedaliah, and they pledged to put away their wives. And being guilty, they offered a ram from the flock for their offense. And then it goes on, their sons, the sons of Immer, and then the sons of Harim, and then the sons of Pashur. So they're all being listed by their family names so that we know exactly genealogically who each of these people are. Verse 23 says, And of the Levites, there was Josabad and Shemai and Kaliah, and then he goes right down through there. And of the singers, verse 24, 
and of Israel, the sons of Parash, that's verse 25, and of the sons of Elam, and of the sons of Zatu, and of the sons of Bibai, and as, and as for the sons of Bani, the reason that these names don't necessarily matter to you at this moment is, trust me, none of you know any of these guys. And so they have no direct effect on you. You can't go home and call them and say, ha, you got called out by Ezra. So it's just a list of names. Verse 35 is Beniah, and verse 36 is Beniah, and verse 44 says all of these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And apparently they had to put the children away as well. And that's the end of the book of Ezra. Now, as I told you when I was introducing the book of Ezra to you, originally Ezra and Nehemiah were considered one book. And then for a little while, they were separated at the point that Nehemiah comes to Judah. But then they were known as first and second Ezra. And then it was an early English translation that separated, I think it was the Tyndale Bible, that separated between Ezra and Nehemiah instead of first and second Ezra. So the book of Nehemiah quite literally just kind of picks up where the book of Ezra ends with Nehemiah and his story and how it is that he, in serving the king, ended up then taking a people group to Judah to continue the work of building the wall. And so that is where we're going to pick up next week. And as we go through Nehemiah, we will also um, take a look at, we have still not looked at Zechariah, so we're still going to have to deal with what Zechariah has said. So we're going to plug him into Nehemiah, and then we're going to plug in Malachi, and then that's the end of the Old Testament, chronologically. We, at that point, will be able to say, hey, we've done it. We've gone through the whole Old Testament chronologically. But we're a ways from there. And then historically God says nothing for 400 years. Israel is in terrible guilt. God has sent the last of the prophets. And then God spends 400 years just letting Israel stew in their guilt. And they don't know what to do. And the, the trouble there in the Middle East doesn't end because the intertestamental books tell us about the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in the time of the Greeks and Alexander the Great comes along and Koine Greek is spread through the Middle Eastern area. All of that takes place in the intertestamental period during those 400 years of silence. And then finally, Matthew opens up with God is speaking again and sending a prophet, John the Baptist. So that's the big picture of what's going on. But Israel at this point is in terrible, terrible guilt. And God would have every right, as Ezra says, God would have every right to just wipe them out completely and say, I'm done with you as a people group. I chose people before. I'll just choose some other people. God would be completely right and justified in wiping them out. But he made him a promise. He made them a covenant, a covenant that he made to his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that reason, because of God's choice, because of God's electing grace, that's the reason that the sons of Israel are not destroyed for all their guilt. And because there's this promise hanging out there ever since Israel leaned on his staff and prophesied what was going to happen in the last days. And he prophesied that the tribe of Judah was going to ultimately produce Messiah. 
that Shiloh, the lawgiver, was going to come from Judah. So Judah couldn't be wiped out despite their astounding guilt because God is just that faithful to the people he chooses. Shall we apply that? Let's apply that for a moment and make good news out of all this now that that heavy night is behind us. Just always remember, and I think Sandy alluded to it earlier, God doesn't change, and once he loves you, he has always loved you. And even if you are as guilty as these Israelites are right here, and even if you're willing to admit that God would be completely right and justified not only to destroy you in this life, but to put you into outer darkness forever. The reason that he's not going to do that has nothing to do with you. The same way it had nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with God's faithfulness and God's grace and God's promises. And the salvation that comes through his son supersedes the wickedness that is you and that is me. And the Bible just keeps saying that human beings simply can't live up to the rules of God or the standards of God or the righteousness of God or the holiness of God. And God ought to hold them guilty, but he doesn't because he's a covenant-keeping God who makes promises unilaterally by himself to himself. And because of those promises, he saves his people. Got all that? Okay. So that's the end of the book of Ezra. Now, for the folks on the Internet, and I'll probably say this again next week, but for anybody who wants to look this stuff up, if you click on the link to go to the Ezra teaching on the website, there's really only a handful of messages there. So I'm just going to continue Nehemiah in that same heading. The, The Ezra heading is going to have Ezra and Nehemiah in it. And we'll just continue next week reading in Nehemiah as if there was no division between Ezra and Nehemiah, because originally that's how it was. Okie dokie. All right. Any questions? Any comments? Any baubles, bangles, beads? Would anyone like to dance for us? Questions, riddles? Who's got what? Yes, Steve. I actually have a comment and a question. The comment is, at the end of the book of Nehemiah, we pretty much are in the exact same spot that we are here at the end of Ezra. Isn't it amazing? So, and that's, you know, a number of years later, um, but they apparently didn't pay attention. They just don't get it. And by the way, since you said that, and since I just said, and they just don't get it, doesn't that kind of correspond with what we were talking about this Sunday? About the fact that the disciples, by their own flesh, saw all these acts and works of Jesus and yet Mark records, and they just didn't get it. Yeah, where are we going to get bread? Yeah, Same thing here. Human beings who have the revelation of God, they've had the prophets of God, the oracles of God, they have the law of God, they have every positive advantage that would allow them, you would think, to do the right thing, and yet they just don't get it. And that, again, is why Jesus is mandatory if anybody's going to be saved because Old or New Testament human beings just don't get it. And the people on the internet couldn't see me slap my forehead, but there I did it. Okay, question. Here's my question. Yeah. And this is a serious question. I have no idea what the answer is. But I I find it interesting that in the English translations, what 
the Israelites did, it says, was put away these foreign wives. And my question is, all right, was this kind of like when David put away the concubines that Absalom had slept with, and they just, you know, they were put away. They were not ever going to get married. They were going to be off by themselves. But he still provided for their needs. Or does this really mean divorce? Well, I think the word divorce means putting away. Well, I think it, it's the opposite it direction. Does, but... Yeah. but you see examples of it all the way back to Abraham. You see God telling Abraham, put away the woman of bondage and her son. He's not going to be heir with the son of Sarah. So put him away. So God, who, who is, I would say, uh, very pro-marriage, there's a stupid statement, God is pro-marriage. But even when you say that, you have to say, but there are circumstances all the way through the Old Testament where God himself says that putting away that wife is appropriate. So it, whether it's David, whether it's Abraham, whether it's here in the time of Ezra with the Israelites, there just are periods of time and circumstances where it's appropriate. Does that sort of kind of answer the question? No, probably not. No, I just took a, a, a leap off of what you asked. I, but. I actually, I think it's worth digging a little bit because there is a word, divorce. But yeah. is that word the same word that is translated put away in another place? And I don't know the answer to that yeah. question. The modern concept of divorce is very, very different than the Old Testament concept of divorce in as much as marriage here in America right now in the contemporary world is more a governmental structure than it is a biblical structure. Uh, God created marriage. God's the one who said what I put together, let no man put us under. God is the one who comes up with that stuff. But now we have created our own human definition of what marriage is so that two men can marry or two women or three dogs or whatever, you know, anybody who wants to get married is suddenly allowed to get married. Hmm? Not yet, but that's coming. Yeah, well, it is, and I I know that people will object to that because they'll say, well, you just compared this kind of marriage to three dogs getting married, so people will rise up. But my whole point in saying it is it doesn't matter what the world says marriage is. It only matters what God says marriage is, and God has defined marriage as one man, one woman ever since Adam and Eve, and so the pulling apart of those people that God put together is different in the Old Testament than modern concepts of divorce because we're talking about legal entities now. We're talking about state-run entities and tax but problems. You know what I don't see in this passage? Pardon me? You know what I don't see in this passage? What? Jewish women putting away foreign husbands. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but the men are responsible for doing it. Maybe, just maybe, the women don't hold the same guilt as the men. Anything else? Yeah, I was going to say something. To yes. Think, but you already said one of them, so I'll jump to my second one. The, the, I like it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, about the Abraham and, 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 uh, and, and, and uh, Yeah, and Hagar. Uh, anyway, yeah. I jumped to the second one. And I'm jumping to the New Testament. Uh, yeah. God had to change. He still says um, that he... Well, Paul said that, that if we remarry, we should remarry a Christian person and not somebody that's not in the church. Right, don't be unequally yoked. Yeah, marry within the faith. That's, that's still an expectation of what godly marriage would be. Yeah. You still don't want to be yoked to an unbeliever. Unhappiness 
must ensue in those cases. And then there's going to be trouble raising the children. Anything else? Okay, now, cross the board. Did I handle that okay? Yeah. I think it's handled about as well as it can be handled. Oh, well, well, good. I got one good vote out of it. I appreciate that. Everybody else okay with it? Because I, I certainly, I'm going to say this one more time, I don't want, when you leave here tonight, to think in any way that Jim was either advocating divorce or justifying divorce or saying, but it's a simple reality in the Old Testament that apparently it's uh, appropriate in certain circumstances. Yes, ma'am. Out of Israel yeah. with their foreign husbands. That might very well be. So um, foreigners were present. So we can we can add all these details and try to sort it out. But anything we say is going to be a certain amount of speculation. It's also possible that. Remember, we were reading Deuteronomy 24 earlier this evening, and the rules about divorce within Israel included that if a woman was divorced by her husband, that she could go marry again. Well, in that society, because she didn't own anything or have anything, I think that was an act of grace on God's part that he would still provide for her after she'd been divorced, because as Jesus said, because of the hardness of men's hearts, that it was allowed, but then God would provide for the women, and the way to provide for them was to allow that they be married again. So maybe their relative guilt and responsibility within the marriage covenant is different than the man's responsibility within the marriage covenant. Maybe that's the reason. So, but again, we're speculating. Anything else? No, we're good? Okay, good. Just glad my name's not on that list. You're glad your name isn't on the list? No, I'm mad that your name wasn't on the list because I could read your name. <laughs> so that would have been okay with probably me. Probably would have been something like Stephen I or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.